welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and just to remind you guys, uh, we are moving to a new format where everything is going to be much more like the conversations that we have regularly the last Wednesday of every month with Emily Jashinsky. Emily's a senior fellow with us at IWF. Um, she's also the culture editor at The Federalist. She is one half of Counterpoints uh, with Breaking Points um, over one of the most popular political podcasts in America. Um, and uh, she's also over with Yak, Young America's Foundation, you know, talking to youths, uh, giving giving the old 30 plus perspective uh, to the, <laughs> the unknowing youngs. Um, anyway, we're, we're very grateful that she has made time in her schedule to talk to us once a month. So Emily, welcome back to High Noon. No, thank you for having me. It is, again, it is one of my favorite parts of the month and I always look forward to it. So thank you, Inez. Um, well, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of upbeat news uh, to, to get to. There hasn't been a lot of upbeat news. Um, we seem to be embroiled in or marching towards uh, some, some, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but but it, it seems like we are on the cusp of major war um, in the world more, uh, not only than more than two weeks ago, but, but then more than a month ago, two months ago. So with this, this vicious attack, um, on Israel being rather the addition to some of the tensions in, in the world in terms of great powers, um, then the catalyst or the sole catalyst, but, um, you know, how do you see, uh, sort of the world right now, um, I know that's an extremely broad question, but you've done some coverage of the meetings that uh, Russia and China have just gone through, um, the the Biden administration's posture towards Iran, um, obviously these attacks in Israel. Obviously, we've had a hot war on the European continent with high casualties now for more than a year. Um, and it seems like our enemies are actually quite openly talking about each other as allies. So... What what is your take um, more generally, and what should we be looking at, and and how should we be feeling about this? Because I feel like American hegemony in the world has taken so many hits in the last uh, several years that uh, it, it leaves me quite despondent, especially when I look around and I see that we are in no domestic place uh, to address those kinds of serious threats. Yeah, right. It's it's like the Biden administration doing the necessary task of talking to Ukraine about corruption. And that's coming from the Biden administration, which is like the least qualified presidential administration uh, specifically to lecture Ukraine on Ukrainian corruption. Although because we are now waging a proxy war to the tune of just millions and millions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars, it's important for us to be able to talk about that. And it's such a great illustration of the sort of, as you were talking about, American hegemony, the state of American hegemony. Um, and, and I have been surprised, actually, by the lack of attention paid in Western media to the meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin last week. Viktor Orban was there, too, of course. But uh, a lot of leaders around the world flocked to Beijing for the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it was the third like Belt and Road Summit. A lot of people know what Belt and Road is, but it's a sort of neo-imperial, soft imperial uh, enterprise that the Chinese have uh, very strategically been spreading around the world uh, via soft power, mostly uh, giving loans to developing countries uh, that are exploitive, uh, intentionally difficult, intentionally exploitive, intentionally uh, sort of uh, bringing them under their uh, into their sphere. Uh, China talks about exporting socialism with Chinese characteristics, uh, showing that as kind of the, the governing system of the future. Uh, they talk about that very directly. And they are in an alliance uh, with Russia that was re-emphasized last week as the West was uh, torn asunder, as the West had students posting paragliders uh, on their social media, as the West saw demonstrations from London to Times Square of solidarity uh, with uh, Palestinians at best, but in some cases, clearly it was beyond that. It was solidarity with brutal terrorists. And uh, our, uh, our enemies, and they are our enemies, I, I know that people like to quibble over that, you know, is, is China and our, is Russia, are they truly enemies? Well, 
China uh, has intentionally stepped into the void of American hegemony and tried to broker peace in the Middle East, tried to broker peace in Ukraine, not with much success. Uh, they've called for a ceasefire. They have not condemned Putin's uh, brutal invasion of Ukraine, whatever we think about American policy prosecuting that war. Uh, it was obviously an invasion. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is frightening because there's echoes of 1913. I mean, a lot of people have been thinking about World War II in the aftermath of the October 7th attack. But I look at this as 1913 and that we have these alliances coalescing um, in ways that are so it's such a fragile geopolitical ecosystem. Uh, Hezbollah attack could easily bubble into Israel taking action against Iran. Uh, we're talking about nuclear powers on the brink of a serious hot war um, that could drag Russia, China, even North Korea in and in ways that are not sort of obvious to us as the first domino falls. Uh, we don't know what happens uh, as those dominoes fall exactly, you know, who does what and how bad it gets. Um, you don't necessarily know that a domino fell when it fell, you, you can kind of see that picture more clearly afterwards. So that's what's really scary to, to me right now. Yeah, there's 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 almost um, these kinds of alliances being made ideologically, right? Um, the, the central feature of which is that they are anti-American and often anti-Western. Um, and I don't want to take this idea too far because I, I have heard some, some things um, from Nikki Haley, from some other folks that uh, seem not to distinguish between, um, and I, to be clear, I think I have been clear on this podcast, I, I support American uh, aid both to Ukraine and, and to Israel, but um, I, I think sometimes we do do a disservice if we uh, entangle all of these conflicts into like one single um, order as though they don't have their own um, historical precedents, if they don't have their own, each of these countries has their own interests, right? Like, um, it's obviously not like a monolith, um, but I, I do see both abroad and at home this essentially this uh, friendliness um, and alliance between people who are simply uh, do not like the U.S. led order. Um, and so on the on the abroad front, it, it really struck me that um, Xi Jinping, I can never say his name, Xi Xi, um, President Xi of China, um, you know, it struck me that he was—he basically was um, when he was referencing Russia, and, and Putin spoke after after uh, Xi. So um, definitely the little brother in in this relationship. Uh, but he, he he basically said, "No, this alliance is on the right side of history." He used that that phrase, which um, you know Obama made famous, and and I very much identify with this sort of anti-American. Um, anti-Western sentiment that exists on college campuses, which leads me to the second half of this this alliance. Um, you know, we are not only seeing these marches in on the Arab street in the Arab world, right, uh, where we would expect it. And and to be clear, these demonstrations actually, I think it's it's an important fact to make clear. They started before a single bomb was ever dropped on Gaza, right? Uh, it, it is a remarkable fact of this conflict where. Israel has suffered this devastating attack, uh, a level of savagery and brutality um, that, you know, has to be essentially seen to be believed. Um, and before the attack is even finished, while there were still live Hamas fighters in the contiguous borders of Israel, uh, there were already demonstrators uh, demonstrating against Israel, right? Um so, you know, we, we've seen these demonstrations and they're not just, you know, sort of over there and they're not even just in Europe where they've imported such high numbers of, of Muslim immigrants from, from both the Middle East and North Africa. Um, but they've been here. And, and the story, if you look at the composition of these, these demonstrators, and as you say, often these demonstrators are overtly pro-Hamas, um, overtly justifying the, the terrorist acts that took place. Um, these are not people with a picture of the two-state solution on their, their banners, right? These are people chanting intifada um, and, and have the paragliders who executed hundreds of, um, you know, young people at a rave, a music festival on the border. They, they chose that to, you know, that symbol um, 
to to march with. And it's an interesting mix of people because it's true that there's a high number of clearly like um, at least, you know, look like fairly recent um, Arab Muslim immigrants. Um, but there are also a lot of the awfuls, right? There's a lot of uh, American woke white girls. There are non-binaries, you know, with blue hair marching uh, with keffiyeh. And um, I understand when people, I mean, it's an easy dunk when you see signs like queers for Palestine, right? Like, you know, don't you know that they throw you off of buildings over there, right? Um, but I think that easy dunk is actually kind of masking one of these uh, woke more correct than the mainstream truths, which is these people have common enemies um, and their enemy is is the civilization, the, uh, the cradle of which has come between Athens and Jerusalem, right? I, I, I say that wordy, wordy phrase instead of Judeo-Christian because I have my uh, sort of ideological um, and theological objections to to blending um, these two traditions so wholly as to call them Judeo-Christian. But but nevertheless, we're, we're talking about two traditions that are clearly identified with the West. And Israel is clearly identified. It's, it's funny. It is the only Western country that is not in Europe or the New World, um, in my view. So I, I don't know what you think about how this alliance has formed or what's animating it at home, uh, because on the surface, again, it seems completely silly. Um, I think in a deeper sense, it is not silly. Um, and it's simply an identification of common targets, whether that's the West more broadly, America, Israel, you know, Jews, white Christian men. Um, I think all of these these categories of, of people and entities slot into the same um, the same like like holding places in this this uh, pyramid of oppression. And just like, you know, the, the fact, the obvious fact that white men were have been discriminated against in every major Fortune 500 corporation for the last two decades, and we have numbers to back that up now, um, and probable lawsuits to back that up, right? And that was considered unacceptable when, at the same time that people were talking about microaggressions keeping minorities out of tech or whatever it is, the overt discrimination on the basis of race and sex was acceptable when it was aimed at white men in the same way I, I see them essentially saying, no, like, these are the colonializers, the oppressors. Uh, anything that is done to them is an advancement of, quote unquote, social justice. I don't know. What what do you think about this alliance? Do you think it's like mere naivete on the part of, of these sort of woke white Westerners? Or do you think uh, or do you agree with me that there's something deeper? How do you think about this very strange alliance? Because I do admit that on the surface, it seems extremely contradictory and weird. Um, Well, it's interesting you say on the surface, because I think on the surface to a lot of our uh, kind of thoroughly memefied young people, especially, and you talked on another podcast, Nat Con Squad, that we recorded today about polling of young Americans' position on whether or not Hamas was justified is shocking. It's like a quarter of young people say like, yes, it was, or it was half of young people, yeah, right? Say 51% is a majority of people between the ages of 18 and 24 specifically not believe in a two-state solution, not believe even in a right of return and, and the annihilation of the state of Israel, right? But specifically believe that this attack was justified based on Palestinian grievances, that, that slaughtering women and children and burning babies alive and cutting them out of their mother's stomach was justified. And it's interesting. Palestinian grievances. You're, the, the, what you said about superficially seeming contradictory and incoherent is interesting because superficially to them, it seems actually like it's justified and coherent and righteous because their superficial lens for absolutely everything is oppressor oppressy. It's the dichotomy. Uh, and I think actually Chris Rufo has been doing some really important writing on this uh, since October 7th on how exactly we have been conditioned as young college educated uh, millennials and Zoomers to see the conflict uh, in Israel. And, and that's not to say that these college educated young Americans between the ages of 18 and 24, which is obviously not our demographic anymore, as we like to point out, uh, is it's not to say that it's a well-educated, fully formed position. It is the opposite. It is to say, because they have been conditioned to apply the superficial lens to every conflict, uh, whether they've read any books on it 
or watched a Netflix documentary or not, uh, they look at the world through that lens. You can call it colonization. You can call it imperialism. You can call it by any name. You could call it Western capitalism, uh, which is sort of funny applied to Israel. But you you can call it any of these things. That's sort of the the crude um, lens that so many Americans see the world through. And it actually blends over with anti-Americanism. I think that's a really, really important point. You see that made directly uh, by Muslim leaders and you see it made uh, in that alliance, as you refer to it, uh, made by Western liberals. Judith Butler is the one that's been picked on a lot because she wrote something back in maybe the 90s, it might have even been early, early days of Hamas, about how it's important to see Hamas, which she says she condemns, blah, 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 through the lens of the struggle uh, for justice, the, the, the leftist struggle against capitalism and imperialism. I'm paraphrasing her, but that's the gist of what she said in that quote. And, you know, you can say you condemn Hamas's violence uh, in, on one hand, and then, you know, say that it doesn't, it's, it's not contradictory or incoherent to see them as a necessary part of the sort of broader struggle against imperialism. Uh, but what you end up with is that incredibly important tweet that went viral immediately in the wake of October 7th, which is, you know, what did y'all think that decolonization looked like? That is probably the most honest and important tweet that's been posted because it was liked by people at the Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And if journalists were being honest and if leftists were being honest, uh, they all would have been liking that post and they all would have been posting the paraglider. Um, But they're not intellectually honest and they don't fully understand this themselves. And I think that's also important. You know, when you have people looking around and saying, how could these Harvard students be marching? How could they be signing letters like this? And, you know, one girl took her signature off the letter, I think, uh, notably. But I think that's the important thing, is they have not fully thought through. Some of them have, of course. Some of the people you mentioned, you know, who seem like relatively recent immigrants to the United States, and um, some of them have fully thought, thought this through and have gone full paraglider but a whole lot of them haven't. And that's where this incoherence is is fascinating and disturbing because on the one hand, you are ceding the moral high ground to Israel and the West by demanding Israel and the West adhere to standards of warfare and morality that you would never, ever expect of Hamas. You would never expect them of Palestinians. You're holding the Geneva Convention against Israel um, after they were just brutalized by terrorists, uh, more than a thousand people, some 1,300, 1,400 I've seen people brutally murdered by terrorists, many of whom are civilians. Uh, You're holding them to standards of warfare uh, that I think are generally better. I'm not saying I agree with every, you know, international law or point of the Geneva Convention intellectually. You can have debates about those things, uh, but that is a, a that is a moral. You are ceding the moral high ground to Israel without even realizing it by holding them to those standards. Um, and, and I really think that this is not. It, it is so 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 superficial, and that's what's shocking about it is that superficially it's obvious that you would, you know, have an easy time standing with Israel in the wake of what happened on October 7th, because nobody, whether it's Palestinians, if the roles were reversed and Israel had stormed into homes of Palestinians and uh, killed babies in their cribs, I think we would all have an easy time immediately standing with Palestine. Uh, And that's exactly how it should be. It's not more complicated. But when you're conditioned to see everything through the colonizer versus colonized, oppressor versus oppressee lens. uh, By the way, that's how you end up at my alma mater getting rid of your mascot, which is the colonials. I mean, it's just idiotic. Um, And but they don't see what is so obviously superficially incoherent because that's how powerful I think the conditioning has been. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad actually you brought up the getting rid of the mascot because to to me this is ideologically coherent in that it it, it hangs together. I mean, if you think about something like the Beard Thesis about uh, because the, these Western constructs, right, like the Geneva Conventions or proportionality of the rules of war, um, the fact that there's a moral difference between targeting military targets um, and ending up killing civilians incidentally because you can't avoid it while still hitting that military target being different than targeting civilians in barbaric and brutal ways um 
this is a Western construct, right? Even the notion of civilian, um, the word civilian comes from citizen. It comes from a Roman and, and you know, the Latin construct of citizen, right? So um, th these are Western constructs, but I think this ideologically hangs together exactly because the, the thesis, and I'm returning to the Beard thesis for a moment, and that that is for, for folks who aren't either aren't familiar or haven't seen was it, I can't remember was it Beard that was cited in in the Depotted um, in that one scene I can't remember which historians were cited in that scene but in any case he's famous for yeah go ahead oh I was gonna say I think, I think you're right I think you're right yeah but he's he's famous for the thesis that essentially our constitutional order is a mere cover uh, for a bunch of rich white men who had money and power and wanted to keep it and set up the rules. Uh, in such a way that they would keep that wealth and power. Um, and in that sense, our constitution is just a cover for an overt racial hierarchy. In the same way, um, I think that uh, when you talk about, like, even in modern critical race theory kind of concepts, right, the idea is that the rule of law or, um, you know, enlightenment principles, free speech, right, um, these things are mere constructs uh, to cover for the application of power from one group against another. Um, and in that sense, it makes sense, like, as in nobody requires that Hamas follow the Geneva Conventions, right? Um, th these calls to, that Israel follow the Geneva Conventions, which it does, um, it, 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 uh, it makes, in some sense, it makes it like they're asking our country, uh, Included like so America here or Israel or any of these like Western countries that that adhere to these kinds of standards of war, right? It's a purely cynical play to ask, right? So it's it's merely because it benefits at this moment, it benefits their team, to use Biden's words, right? Um, it benefits their team to to ask uh, for these rules of war. But if you ask them one additional follow-up question, they will say these rules of war are illegitimate because they're merely constructs, right? They're about of, of the powerful nations of the West to continue their colonial oppression of, of the weaker nations of the global South, right? Um, and, and in fact, like these rules of war that we're demanding uh, that you adhere to um, are themselves a cover for this kind of, of uh, raw application of power. And so to return for a moment to the free speech issue, which you kind of mentioned and I think is interesting to discuss, right? Um, that was sort of my reaction when I started to see all these, these like the Harvard president, all these like college administrators. Now that this, that people are uh, openly celebrating and calling for the slaughter of, of Jewish civilians in Israel, um, now they have these, these statements coming out about free speech about the limits of free speech. And my immediate reaction to this is this is this is the same thing. This is a cynical ploy. I think there are ways of distinguishing, but leave that for, uh, for to aside from a moment, whether you can distinguish, you know, the cancellations of the left from um, these these quote unquote cancellations. Right. But regardless of that distinction, this is a cynical ploy. It's trying to get the right to hold its fire and the center to hold its fire. Right. Uh, in in this engagement, this domestic uh, political engagement only so far as the left can regain control, regain control of the narrative, regain control of, of the actual levers of power in these universities and beyond them. Um, at which point, like, does anyone imagine that the Harvard uh, pr uh, president who called for free speech is going to apply those standards the next time? Oh, I don't know. Somebody uh, does something as horrendous as chalk Trump 2024 on, on a university quad. Right. Of course, she's not going to. It's a cynical um, it's, it's a play. It's a cynical play that's going to disappear the second that these tools are no longer useful to her substantive friends. Right. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Do you think that 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 uh, what do you think about the cancellations generally? Because um, I know that like it, it, it does seem uh, to, to some people they're saying, well, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't use the same tactics. Um you know, th these are college students, like we shouldn't ruin their whole lives over, for example, signing this letter. Like, wh where are you on the, on what to do with, with the college students who, who have been espousing these, these views? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's fairly, we, we used to have a much sort of simpler 
uh, and like more logical approach to all of this, which is uh, we kind of agreed on a reasonable spectrum of opinions and we hadn't inflated. There was a period of time when as a society, we had a, a pretty decent moral consensus on what was hatred, bigotry, racism. And it wasn't always that way, of course, but there was a period of time where we had a pretty good idea. And, you know, there's far left and far right. And the mainstream, you know, wasn't going to have, uh, you know, that Bill Maher had a show called Politically Incorrect, just for kind of being a leftist um, in the in the 90s, as opposed to, you know, but, but he was still on ABC. I think that show was on ABC. Um, I just don't think it's it's that complicated in a healthy society. And obviously it's not a healthy society. So that is to say, um, I don't think it's, it it depends on the venue. So if you're uh, a private company and you believe that someone's uh, opinion, and this is conservatives maybe even got over their skis on this uh, when they were sort of being targeted for having regular conservative opinions. Uh, If you believe that someone's position is morally abhorrent, not just sort of a good faith disagreement on, for instance, abortion, but makes them, if their political beliefs reflect profoundly on their character, um, and you are a school, for example, like professors are the most obvious example of this, the UC Davis professor that posted on Twitter an open threat um, against people who opposed her position on Palestine, against people who were pro-Israel in the wake of Hamas's attack on it. She tweeted a, a pretty open uh, threat. That isn't a matter of free speech. It's a matter of violating like your code of conduct as a professor. Um, and there's obvious questions about when speech uh, becomes, when, when speech sort of overlaps with uh, professionalism and uh, contractual obligations uh, to have a comfortable environment for students. But we just used to be able to function more clearly in that regard. We used to kind of understand uh, where speech and conduct bled uh, together and where they you know, sort of were obviously separate because we agreed on sort of these, these fundamental questions. And Israel's a really interesting uh, a, a really interesting, I guess, flashpoint or example, because actually it's probably always been the most difficult issue. You know, people, if, if, if you think chanting from the river to the sea um, is anti-Semitic and is uh, like bigotry, then you are going to have a really hard time letting a teacher who posts from the river to the sea because they think it's, you know, bigoted not to. They think it's genocidal to uh, allow Israel to have any space from the river to the sea. Like this has actually always been really complicated with Israel. It is one of the the questions that has tested Western speech and sort of small L liberalism, republicanism uh, since its inception. Uh, that was always complicated for entities, private entities, public entities. Um, but I think in the wake of like having this crop up after all of the ridiculous questions about, you know, whether you're a racist because you voted for Donald Trump, whether you're um, a racist because you didn't post the black box or you had a heterodox position on George Floyd, blah, blah, blah. We've had so many ridiculous conversations about this. It has confused like very obvious lines in the sand. So I guess that that is a long, very long winded way of saying, um, I think there's a pretty reasonable argument that some of the statements, not all of them, but some of the statements, including the professor at UC Davis, have gone beyond the pale of reasonable political disagreements and are therefore fair game um, for cancellation, so-called cancellation for revoked jobs, whatever, whatever, because they they go beyond that and reflect on the uh character qualifications of a given person. There's a reasonable argument that they reflect on the character qualifications of a given person. So, uh, you know, fine. Like, it doesn't bother me that much. But at the same time, it's also like, Larry Summers, this is what, this is what, this is your, this is what has really gotten you uh, after decades of allowing this other stuff to metastasize and fester in the shadows. Because even you, Larry Summers, who, you know, was sort of an early cancel culture example, uh, hadn't the courage to stop this BS conditioning about colonization and capitalism, blah, 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 happening at your university. Uh, So like, 
Do I think some of these cancellations are overblown? Absolutely. I don't think MSNBC should be yanking people off of the air. I would much rather hear what these guys have to say. I'd much rather see it on cable news. um, And I'd much rather everyone fight about it. On the other hand, uh, there's a real question here about, uh, you know, how some of these positions reflect on people's character. Um, So that it's, it's kind of some of them are fair game. I'm a totally mixed and it's been example by example for me. So, I mean, I think it's important to qualify uh, some of these students and, and so on who have, for example, had their names uh, given they've lost job offers and things like that. Um, that All the examples I have seen have, again, not been pro-Palestinian. They have been cheering the attack. Right. Um, and, and the Harvard and, statement said Israel is, quote, entirely to blame. That's an insane right. position. Um. So I, I just want to distinguish that because I, I mean, I do, I think I would have a problem with some of these cancellations if they were um, yanking job offers for students expressing an opinion about uh, like like a two-state solution or like that they're, they're standing in solidarity right. with the Palestinian people, as stupid as I think both of those things are, by the way. Right. Um, right. I, I think that there, there have always been per- substantive parameters around what we call like polite society, which also extends to business arrangements, right? Um, There actually have always been limits that Anglo tolerance of who we do business with. Um, And so it's, it's never been, and this is where I think Michael Knowles, for example, actually understands this debate much better than a lot of people on the right. Um, And he's pointing out that, you know, there's a difference between canceling somebody uh, for something that's true and something that's false. And you can't avoid Mm. this, this, uh, dichotomy, right? The problem isn't that there are some views that will get you kicked out of polite society. That's always been the case. The question is, which views and are they true or false? So that's so important because it's what we were talking about how on how we used to have more consensus. Um, and, and that's the biggest like th- that's one of the biggest things that we've lost that's made this conversation about cancel culture, um, you know, easier to prosecute or or more difficult to prosecute in recent years because we don't uh, agree that truth fundamentally, and Michael writes about this in his book, which is great on speech and is much more honest than a lot of the conservative critics of cancel culture, as reasonable as their positions may be, um, about, you know, there has to be shame in society and nobody should just be pro absolutely everything, uh, like the the position of... And in point of fact, no one really is. Exactly, exactly. Um. No, no one, no one really is. Uh, it's, it's never been. I keep using this example, but it's never been a good thing for you in America for your career to have a swastika tattooed on your forehead. Like that's, that's never been. You would not be hired in a white shoe law firm with a swastika right. on your forehead in, right. you know, in, in 1948. It's like, not cancel culture for Harvard to t- or for, for the white shoe law firm to take away your job if you do that. Yeah. So, uh, I think we have this this unavoidable move from procedure and procedural protections to the substance of what's being asserted. It's it's not just wrong because the procedure is wrong to, to fire people for expressing the belief that men and women are different. That is a true belief. And yes, we leave some, you know, we leave actually in the United States an enormous amount of room for people to be wrong um, about things. So we protect false speech, but we protect false speech in the interest of making sure that the truth gets out there. We don't protect false speech for the sake of it, and that's not actually the legal construct in the United States. We protect false speech only because we do not trust the government to make that distinction uh, between true and false speech, not that the distinction doesn't exist, right? Um, and and I think that's, that's something, again, I, I think Michael has really, um, his book was very good. I had him on here when the, when the book came out and it was funny because he, he told me like afterwards, a lot of people did not read the book, um, when he was doing it and assumed that it was this maximalist free speech position. And so all the interviews or a lot of them were, were postured from that perspective when in fact he had written something much philosophically deeper, um, recalling. And again, for example, God and man at Yale is, is a book that contains arguments against academic freedom. A hundred. Right? That is what it is, basically. Yeah, and <laughs> and yeah. there's this this collapse, this total collapse of the right into this this hollow libertarian proceduralism 
without any of the substance. And look, I'm not against the proceduralism in many cases. Um, it's important to keep certain procedural protections. Due process, for example, is a procedural protection that protects the core right of Americans. So I'm not saying these, these procedures are irrelevant or we can dispense with them. Um, but you can't build a common consensus or culture on procedure. Um, you have to, at some point, assert this is true, this is false, and we've totally lost the ability to do that. Um, and and uh, just as a, a, a funny thought, uh, exactly to the point, Politically Incorrect on ABC was canceled. It was canceled after 9-11 um, in 2001 when, yes, there was a conversation about politically correct. That's what the name is, is playing on, right, uh, about PC language, but we didn't have what we call today cancel culture, Okay. And yet it was booted off air. I actually think unfairly, but it was because of a joke that Bill Maher made days after 9-11, or actually a statement, not even a joke. Um, it was like kind of made jokingly, but um, in which he, he said that the 9-11 terrorists are not cowards, right? You're not a coward if you fly a plane into a building. Like, And I actually agree with that assessment. Um, but in, in the initial days after that attack, after 3,000 American dead, that was considered beyond the pale. It was considered too close uh, to, to uh, offering understanding and, and, and tolerance to the terrorists who had just taken 3,000 American lives in cold blood. Um, and he, that's why he was moved to cable. That's right. why that show was canceled. Um, and, and we didn't have this conversation about, quote unquote, cancel culture. And the media proceeded after canceling Politically Incorrect to go after years of uh, finding the uh, the specter of Islamophobia under every single rock, right? So it wasn't that the media objected to, um, you know, whitewashing the impulses of radical Islam uh, because they proceeded to do that for years. It was a question of um, basically taste. And as a, a culture, and this is another thing that I think, you know, free speech absolutist, which I I refer to myself in that way sometimes because it's like as free speech as an absolutist as you can get of sort of disagreeing with Michael on a lot of different points. But um, we also have to remember that those boundaries, as Palia would argue beautifully um, when it comes to you know nudity and sex, those boundaries are what often, she talks about this with the code, which was totally voluntary in Hollywood, golden age of cinema. That's what makes art good. That's what makes uh, politics radical. That's what makes these conversations sometimes invigorating because you dabble in things uh, like like Bill Maher did, your comedy, uh, you're, you're sort of pushing boundaries. And sometimes you go in places like with that, do I think it was cancelable for the show? I mean, maybe because the country was sort of mobilizing and et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't good for business, certainly for ABC. Uh, but like, do I actually think it's great that Bill Maher said that, like he should be able to see that he should be able to say that because that's where our conversations become interesting and valuable is in that disagreement. Uh, and when people are outraged, they argue. And when people argue, they come to better positions. So these things are all, you know, good. Like that's, and this is probably where Michael and I would disagree on, on some of that. And we have disagreed on some of that. Like it, it, it is uh, important for the sake of contrast and it is what makes uh it often not always but it is what often you know i'm not saying the piss christ was a you know valuable exercise at all uh, and and sometimes in the sake of pursuing that contrast and allowing for that contrast we go full postmodernism. um so i'm not you know endorsing any of that but uh there is value in having things be sort of beyond the pale and people need to be more comfortable uh, especially people who are so style themselves as radicals, as truly being radicals and not begging for mainstream acceptance. Your radicalism does not logically uh, allow for, it should not logically allow for your mainstream endorsement. Like why why you would crave that so bad badly is just beyond me, but they do, they insist on it uh, because it's all about conformity at the end of the day and this Inez I wanted to mention this earlier um this is kind of a tangent but conservatives back in like the early aughts had a conversation uh because Stan Evans wrote a, a great book uh diving into some of the files of Nona files right that came out um vindicating some of what some of what um 
McCarthy is basically McCarthyism. And when you think back to that time, I think we've talked about this before, and you wonder, like, why was there a, a lavender scare? What were the Palmer raids? Why were people so hysterical about communism? And God of many and man at Yale made me think of this. It's because there were nuclear powers with this fundamentally anti-Western, anti-American and like pro-imperialist communist ideology of internationalism, of unleashing workers of the world and toppling capitalism and Western democracy um, that had nuclear powers. And if they were in the State Department, yeah, that was probably concerning. So none of this is to endorse full McCarthyism. But it is to say, and and, uh, Stan Evans himself was critical of McCarthy, but it is to say that you know, looking back and William F. Buckley saying maybe we shouldn't have communists educating every child that goes through the system of higher education because they're then going to be overly sympathetic to nuclear powers that absolutely hate us. Huh. <laughs> like and when you look around the world right now and you see what America has become, you think, hmm, if only we had that wisdom now. Heck, it sounds reasonable to me. But uh, look, I look, I think what you're pointing to is there is... And actually, this is what small L liberalism meant until the 60s. There exists a space between firing, you know, people who cheer terrorist attacks and jailing them, right? And and there exists a space between putting the piss Christ guy in a cell and not giving him a show at the Met. Right. I don't think he had a show with right. that, by the way. I'm just right. anyway. Well, he had um, government funding like we funded it. That was the right. Like grants. Right. right? right. Um, giving giving him a um, national endowment of the, of the arts. Right. Grant. Right. Um, th- there is actually that is the space of liberalism um, in, in, in the exactly. best sense. Uh, and actually, this is why I mean, I ultimately am. I, I, I find myself you know, somewhere in between the common good conservatives, perhaps, and the more like Reaganite um, understanding of the world, because I am a liberal. What what I'm not going to cede is the post-1960s definition of liberalism uh, under which no country has been liberal, right? Like, um, you know, the U.S. was basically, what, an illiberal country until the mid-60s? Like, this is the understanding that we're supposed to have, whereas I think we are a, we were a liberal country with strong other influences. We weren't a pure liberal country, but we had strong religious influence, Christian influence. Um, We had a strong civic tradition and a more, like, small-R Republican tradition of self-government. Um, and these were all running count, uh, contrary to sort of a pure distilled vision of liberalism. But even that vision of liberalism itself, for example, did not exclude the states making these normative declarations on the basis of small d democratic power about morals, straight up morals, not just like uh, – you know, not just things that, that might be related to morals and, and the discussion about whether people can even bring their sense of morality, whether derived from religion or elsewhere, into the public square that has characterized our debate about these things since the 1960s, that it's inherently illegitimate. But in fact, that it was presumptively legitimate for and and within the boundaries of the liberal tradition for a people to, to substantively declare some things immoral, bad for the society, and then to decide, do we want to actually ban this or do we want to discourage it in a number of other ways? And this is like, in some ways, a pragmatic conversation. But it, it and, and that conversation, I think, can be had with a large degree of nuance, a large degree of tolerance in the, in the, the sort of classical sense of the word and, and a large respect for that dichotomy between the, the mainstream and, and the fringes of society and, and, and not needing to sort of go down and hunt down, you know, dissenters in that way and lock them all up or something like that. Um, But nevertheless requires this ability to actually step into the normative conversation that still feels inherently illegitimate to a large part of the right. And I I wonder if this event um, 
you know, I, I obviously wonder if, if people's eyes will remain open um, on uh, from this event. I mean, I've definitely seen more interest. I mean, Nikki Haley came out and said, we need to defund universities. You know, look, I, I, I get the resentment, by the way, that they didn't do this for anything else. Like, why is this the, the moment you, you didn't see this coming for the last 20 years? You didn't see this coming when when there was, you know, anti-white hatred uh, being, you know, uh, being spread on college campuses and now something happens in a foreign country and this is the moment for you. I understand that kind of like resentment from people. That being said, it's an unproductive resentment in the sense that, you know, if they're willing to do it now, full steam ahead, as far as I'm concerned, right? Like I'm not going to, to sit around and like not join this in this effort, but like the fact that you have, mainstream centrist Republicans coming out and saying like, we need to do something about the universities. Right. Um, I, I mean, I hope that that will last. I hope that this kind of eye opening experience, because if this surprised you fundamentally, if, if the reaction to this attack surprised you on universities on the, you know, the streets of Greenwich village, and Bay Ridge for two different reasons, right? Greenwich Village being the the queers for Palestine and Bay Ridge being the recent uh, immigrant population out there. If this alliance surprised you uh, and the ferocity and the willingness to look at even away from this level of violence surprised you, then you need to adjust some of the priors and how you see the world because and- it was predictable. I, I was honestly surprised there was any pushback. That was the surprising part of it to me. Agreed. And that's how I felt in 2020 when people were like looking around at the yes. statue toppings. I was like, what did you? Yes, of course they're doing this. Of course they're doing this. This has been like festering and growing and growing and growing, metastasizing in the shadows of your attention as you were mocking uh, as the, the good folks over at Vox and wherever else was mocking, mocking Fox News for having campus craziness segments on Fox and Friends. You're laughing. Do you realize what's happening? Of course this is happening. Uh, and so I think it's like the people who say we need unbiased news. Well, that's technically impossible, right? Because you can, you, you have to put a headline on your stories and you have to, at the end of the day, decide what story you have to, to choose cover. a story. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there's always going to be human bias in covering the news. And there's no such thing as neutral liberalism, no matter how romantically libertarians wax about it. What they're, what they're really talking about is um, a, a more neutral or a good neutral system. Good, of course, is involving human bias as well. But like that's we used to have um, boundaries like you can have neutrality within boundaries that you agree on. And those boundaries aren't going to be perfect, for example, because for a long time in this country, they allowed segregationists uh, and slavers into the boundaries of what constituted a reasonable discourse. But you're always improving um, you know, that's that's the point of small R republicanism. It's that you are always improving and you are always striving for a more perfect union, um, not a perfect union, a more perfect union, because you fundamentally agree that human beings are not going to create a perfect union. It's more perfect. Um, and, and so when you, you to your point, Inez, when we can't fundamentally agree on again, like the concept of truth, which is something that we did agree on uh, as we were striving towards a more perfect union during very dark periods in American history as to what our law allowed for, as to what our culture allowed for, as to what was not shamed um, and where there was you know, no shame in, in Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we at least agreed that certain things were true. We at least agreed on that sort of fundamental concept. And then when you get into the 20th century, you lose that. And that's where everything, I think, rather than striving to be more and more perfect, we're devolving. We're becoming less and less perfect because we can't agree on some of those base points. And you have to, and able to uh, engage in liberalism, you have to agree on some of those basics. And we just, we don't, and there's no signs that it's getting better. Yeah, I mean, on on the last point about the fact that there's no signs that it's getting better, I mean, in this sense, I think Israel is a very good example uh, to us because the circumstances of their geography have put a hard stop to some of this 
like track, right? They are, they, they have a contact with reality in a way that the U S can avoid, you know, gratefully. I'm grateful for this because of our geography, because of our incredible wealth. Um, but as we look around the world to kind of bring this full circle to how we started, as we look around the world, you know, it is not impossible to see a conflict brewing that would put the U.S. in this kind of existential position, right? Um, that Israel has by virtue of being a country of being nine and a half million people surrounded by 500 million Muslims, most of whom hate them, right? Um, it is not impossible to imagine a conflict brewing that would actually require, in order to be victorious, would require a unity of purpose and the kind of exactly not um, self-hating and uh, like it would require us to take our own side and to do so normatively, vigorously, and without equivocation and put our shoulder to the wheel in a way that we have not had to do um, in order to win. Like a conflict with China is no joke. A conflict with China and Russia is no joke, right? Um, It's not the sort of thing that the U.S. can win with one hand tied behind its back. It's not the sort of thing that the U.S. can win with, uh, you know, <laughs> with 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 making the priority decisions that we have, um, and and catering to the beliefs that have not just become common but have become dominant in in U.S. institutions. It is impossible for me to imagine the current constitution ideological constitution of the United States, especially post-2020, uh, and imagine us victorious in a great powers war. Um, and that that's something that's that's truly scary, right? Like that, that perception of invincibility. Uh, and to that extent, and that extent only, I have some sympathy for college students and whatever crazy views, although it, it would be bad for us not to remind people that, you know, the bloody work of revolution is usually done by idealistic 20-year-olds. Um, so in that sense, they're very dangerous. But one does wonder, you know, if if some of these students had to make contact with that reality, um, how they would react. But I, I don't know. I think it's an open question. I think it's entirely possible. They make contact with that reality uh, and they double down and they become more fervent rather than less in in their animating principle, which seems to be hating the West. That's so interesting because there were a lot of people, and you look back at uh, especially the, uh, the coverage of Oppenheimer, as people were talking about Oppenheimer over the summer, um, there was a lot of people saying, you know, they like Walter Durante, right? Uh, the famous sort of coverage of Stalin and famine for the New York Times uh, back in, what was it, the 30s? Um, there were a lot of people saying, you know, people in academic circles, elite fancy circles in the United States were very supportive of communists, were members of the Communist Party USA, because they, you know, the truth of what was happening in the Soviet Union had not, in China, had not yet sort of penetrated the Western media. People didn't reckon, didn't realize the full extent of communist atrocities. And I, I do think there's something to that extent going on now. Uh, first of all, a lot of them did, and they were still uh, palling around with uh, communists, to paraphrase uh, Sarah Palin. Yeah, yep, exactly. A lot of them knew exactly what was happening. Um, I do, though, think in the, the freakout that ensued, the kind of McCarthyist freakout that ensued after World War II, uh, this was a generation of people that had lost so many men in the battlefields of Europe and in the seas in the Pacific, um, they had gone through a depression um, where people were were literally starving, which is a problem that has basically been eradicated in the United States right now. Uh, even the poorest are eating uh, the same thing as the richest in terms of fast food, right? These, this awful, cheap food. Um, it's just a very different set of circumstances for people who are suffering in the U.S. now versus people who were suffering in the aftermath of of World War II. Uh, And that, I think, is why gradually, um, I mean, the FBI building is named after J. Edgar Hoover, and I don't think it should be. But I think it's the point is that it became clear that there was something very shameful about associating with these communist organizations because they hated your country. Uh, they they absolutely hated the United States. They had allied uh, with Hitler 
um, in the early stages of World War II. They were bad. They detested you and everything your country stood for, and they wanted an uprising that would topple American values and would topple American leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And that came to be extremely stigmatized uh, because people had experienced the horrors of war and because the horrors of communism became very clear as time went on. Um, but to your point now, I don't know. I mean, like you had the horrors of Hamas on full display, uh, on full display. And uh, students were not duped. They have agency. Uh, they they saw that and said, I'm standing uh, not with Israel right now. I am going to post the paraglider. Uh, I'm going to say it's entirely Israel's fault, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, and this is where it gets confusing, they still demand Western standards of warfare and Western standards of civilian, uh, you know, humanitarian aid, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they're very confused right now. But to your point, Inez, I actually really think that could go in different directions. We don't know how it's going to turn out yet, because uh, if you have the impulse to post the paraglider, um, I'm not so sure that your commitment to Western values that you still hold is going to be durable in the long term. Yeah, I mean, to to their credit, right, both uh, U.S. labor with a capital L uh, and, and Hollywood um, disassociated themselves as the Cold War hardened. There was much more crossover between the Soviet Union and communist parties in the 20s and 30s than there was after the war. And um, so there was like sort of this this grand association, the AFL and the CIO dissociated themselves from from the Communist Party and from from radicals in that way. Uh, something, you know, that seems maybe, I mean, it may happen again today uh, as, as the U.S. labor movement, um, you know, perhaps gains some strength away from, you know, baristas with college degrees, uh, but, but in, in more manufacturing sectors, maybe we will see a similar split in labor um, moving away from, from this kind of cultural radicalism. That would be a welcome um I think a welcome development and good for the United States. But I, I want to close by reading something um, I think really sums up our conversation, especially about the boundaries of, of free speech and, and the lack of having some kind of normative truth that is, I think your, your phrase was, was a great one, right? A neutrality, but a neutrality between agreed upon boundaries um, that, that seems so lacking today. And, and it's once again from this fantastic essay that I just, um, I think, you know, every time I, I read it, I find something that applies to our moment uh, in it, but it's called Capitalism, Socialism, and Nihilism. It's uh, by Irving Kristol, but, uh, and he wrote it in 1973, which makes it all the more prescient. Um, it said, our version of the free society is dedicated to the proposition that to be free is to be good. The new left, though it echoes this proposition when it's convenient for its purposes, is actually dedicated to the counterbelief, which is the pre-liberal proposition that to be good is to be free. In the first case, the category goodness is emptied from any specific meaning. In the second case, it's the category of freedom, which is emptied of any specific meaning. In the war between these two heresies, the idea of a free society that is in some specific sense virtu virtuous, the older bourgeois ideal, and the idea of a good community that is in some specific sense free, the older socialist ideal, as represented, say, by European social democracy, both are emasculated, and the very possibility of a society that can be simultaneously virtuous and free that organically weds order to liberty becomes ever more remote. Um, and I, I really think that is something that describes where we're at and uh, this, this clarifying moment, um, at least this moment that I hope will continue to be clarifying in, in the long term rather than simply in the short term um, as people obviously uh, react, you know, good and decent people react with horror to what's happened, um, that, that they don't allow that reaction to stay superficial, um, that, that they, they think about what it means uh, to be in a good country, um, in a country that is both good and free, um, and what's that's worth, worth to us. Um, Emily, thanks once again for always joining um, every, every month, the last Wednesday of every month, We'll be with Emily. She'll be back here next um, next month at the end of next month. As I mentioned, we're going to be moving to a more discussion format here on High Noon. Um, we're going to have a series of, of co-hosts, um, Emily among them. Uh, so thank you for bearing with us while we took a little gap and, and retooled the show. I hope you um, enjoy this new format. Please do send me feedback. Um, 
Thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send that feedback, comments, or questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button, leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.